0: You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. And the problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. The health system perpetuates gender inequalities and restrictive gender norms. Because stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV-AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. I'm joined today by Dr. Richard Hatchett. CEO of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, based in London and Oslo. In the course of the work of the Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, we put a big focus at different times on the unfolding work of CEPI, how it operates, how its work relates to U.S. health security interests. Had an opportunity last July to convene several of our commissioners for a dinner discussion with Richard. I had a personal chance in August to have a conversation in brief with members of the SEPI team in Oslo. And most importantly, in the recommendations issued when the report was made public November 20th, it includes a very explicit recommendation of endorsing the work of SEPI as a very important set of innovations and a new model. And calling upon the United States to strike a much stronger and direct relationship in support of CEPI as a partner investor calling for $40 million investment annually in CEPI and engaging in a much more intense and higher level in the collaborations around setting its agenda and working forward. So, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. We're delighted to have you with us.
1: Steve, thanks for having me on. And thank you for the commission's leadership and and work, uh, including CEPI and its recommendations.
0: Thank you. And we're doing a few of these podcasts, which are meant to be paired with the release of the commission report and offers us a chance to delve in a bit more detail around some of the recommendations. So what we're going to do today is do exactly that with you here at CEPI. So the first thing I wanted to, for our listeners, was explore with you, what it means to be an investor partner with SEPI. We're proposing that be the case for the U.S. government and we're hopeful, optimistic that that can happen. But tell us a bit, with those countries that are partner investors with you and those foundations that are partner investors with SEPI. how does that relationship evolve and what does that mean?
1: The relationship with our investors. And you're right. It is both Philanthropies and the Gates Foundation and Wellcome and uh, a number of sovereign investors led by Norway, Germany, and Japan in the first instance, and we've expanded that set of investors over time. Those relationships do evolve. You're, You're exactly right. It starts with a funding relationship and it provides the core funds that we use to support the vaccine development efforts. But each of our investors, by virtue of stepping up, has indicated their commitment to addressing the problem of epidemic disease. And we have worked very closely with our investors, looking at their full set of capabilities that they bring, particularly as as governments, with the sovereign investors, laboratory capabilities, scientific experts that they support, uh, other kinds of response capabilities that they may have. And we try to think about. Sepi as a larger coalition mm-hmm. of, of groups that are working to address epidemic disease. And to the extent we can bring those strategic capabilities in coordination with the funding, of course, but to the extent that we can bring coordination to the overall set of capabilities that our investors have in their possession to bear on this problem, that's the ideal. And we have worked with each investor over time to explore opportunities to engage more deeply than just through the funding relationship. So
0: this partnership gives you an opportunity to reach. It gives you reach to those special capabilities that the Germans, the Japanese, the Norwegians have, but it also gets you into a pretty active dialogue and exchange around priorities and strategies for moving forward because you're really attempting to accelerate the development of vaccines and therapies, diagnostics towards these dangerous pathogens that the market is not responding to. You're putting this new model together. Everybody's puzzling over how to be best positioned to find these solutions. And so say a bit more about, well, what do you ask of the, when you're having a dialogue with the Germans or the Norwegians around your work and how you align your work with their priorities, what are you talking about? Well, let me let me, let me actually use an example
1: uh, from the United Kingdom, who's yeah. another one of our funders. Yeah. The UK, they're a more recent investor to CEPI. They've made a set of investments in in global health security. Uh, They've set up something called the UK Vaccine Network to Mm -hmm. support upstream research. They are in the process of establishing a vaccine manufacturing and innovation center that will allow pilot production capability. Those are investments that they have made independent of their investment in CEPI, but they are directly related to the work that CEPI is doing. And, And so we have engaged with them through the UK Vaccine Network governance mechanisms. I actually sit on the board of the Vaccine Manufacturing and Innovation Center and I'm helping provide direction and guidance so that the overall um, UK investments can be internally coordinated with each other and coordinated with the efforts that SEPI is supporting.
0: So they're pulling you in as an expert with broad perspective.
1: Well, I think it's an example of, of, of where my insights about what SEPI's priorities are and the priorities of the larger yeah. pool of investors can inform right. Right. how the UK directs its own investments. And, and that's just maybe the best example of how we like to do that. But we've engaged in similar types of discussions with our Australian partners, with our Canadian mm-hmm. partners, mm-hmm. with the German partners, as you mentioned, similarly with Japan.
0: So in the event that we're successful and there's a closer operational and financial partnership, struck with the U.S. government, what would you see as the most important thing to gain in terms of your own reach, sort of the sort of advantages that would come to CEPI? Let's take that side of things.
1: Well, I know the U.S. government programs well. I worked within the U.S. You've been an architect. For about 15 years, I, I was deeply involved in helping set them up. And I think the U.S. has tremendous capabilities, both through the national laboratories, through the investments at the National Institutes of Health, through the Department of Defense, through the investments in BARDA. The capability in the U.S. is unparalleled anywhere else in the world. When I was working in the U.S. government, and I think this is largely still the case, those capabilities have been directed at protecting national health security as opposed to global health mm-hmm. security. But there's tremendous alignment between what the U.S. is doing. even. When it views it purely in, in national terms, protecting mm-hmm. domestic populations, and what CEPI is trying to do to develop capabilities to protect populations anywhere in the world, I think there are a number of opportunities. I mean, there are opportunities for coordinated investment where mm-hmm. we sort of split the waterfront, as it were, mm-hmm. and, I, and CEPI takes one part of the problem and the US mm-hmm. government can take another part. There's an opportunity for coordinated investment in particular. Mm -hmm. Projects And, of course, I think U.S. contributions to CEPI's common pool actually would allow the U.S. to step into a global leadership role along with the other investors to help set direction for global activities. And I think U.S. leadership historically has Mm -hmm. been critically important in advancing the development of countermeasures, promoting equitable access to those countermeasures, Mm -hmm. and really defining – you know how to solve this problem and you mentioned it earlier the the problem of developing products for diseases where there just literally are no commercial markets driving the innovation that we need
0: mhm for a moment let's digress to talk about us leadership since you mentioned that and we had talked earlier about these earlier instances in, in your career while working within the United States government as a leader of over a 15-year period where you saw the value and virtues of very strong high-level U.S. leadership in the midst of a dangerous unfolding situation. I just wanted to ask you, take advantage of your presence here today. Give us a couple of key examples to illustrate the value of having strong White House leadership and leadership coming from other parts of our government. Sure. Well, going back about 15
1: years, actually, uh, for pandemic preparedness, uh, that was a direct concern of President Bush after he read The Great Influenza by John Barry. He directed the Homeland Security Council at the time to develop a national strategy, to develop a national implementation plan. And there was very strong leadership at the time. There was actually, I think, a directorate focused exclusively on biodefense within the Homeland Security Mm -hmm. Council reporting directly to the president. That Presidential priority and that leadership directly out of the White House, bringing the inner agency together, led to the development of a, of a very strong plan that was in the process of being implemented just a few years later when the pandemic actually came along. And I, I think the fact that very few people have any strong memories of the pandemic speaks to the quality of the response and the fact that it, that there was an effective response to the pandemic. And now, that
0: started with the president.
1: And that started with the president. I mean, the pandemic in 2009, occurred under the presidency of President Obama, but it built very strongly on all of the investments and commitment of President Bush's administration. And there was leadership from the office of the president, from the office of the vice president, and the very complicated coordination that was required to bring that whole of government effort together would not have occurred without strong White House leadership. I think during the 2009 pandemic, this is an example of the importance of US leadership globally, President Obama made a commitment to donate 10% of the US's vaccine supply, and Samantha Power, who at the time, this was before she was ambassador to the UN, uh, led an effort to bring other countries into that donation effort, and I think was able to bring nine or 10 additional countries along to make similar pledges, commitments of, yeah. of vaccine. Subsequent to the pandemic, in 2010, President Obama charged the national security staff with the full review of the medical countermeasures enterprise in the U.S. government. And that led to a months-long effort with weekly meetings of people like Dr. Fauci and Peggy Hamburg, who was the head of the FDA FDA at the time, Mm -hmm. and Tom Frieden, in the Situation Room at the White House to develop a national approach to enhancing and supporting U.S. government efforts to develop medical countermeasures. And that review and that high-level leadership which which drove the development of an integrated set of policies and investments um, dramatically improved the efficiency and effectiveness of U.S. government investment.
0: So how would you – what would you point to today to a citizen, non-technical expert in any of this in terms of proof of you are now safer as a person living in the United States because of X?
1: Well, so at the time that – we undertook that review, which was in 2010. There might have been seven or eight products that had been licensed or received FDA approval through the U.S. government efforts to that point over about a decade. Mm -hmm. Since then, I think that number has climbed to over, I think it's over 50 now. I mean, it it is a remarkably effective enterprise and robust enterprise. And if you look back over the last several years, what you see a couple of years after that review was done, you you see an acceleration in these approvals and licensure, and it was because of the improved coordination within the U.S. government and the, and the the focused and targeted investment at FDA, at BARDA, and elsewhere to around
0: these measures, these countermeasures.
1: Yeah, and it and it was it was it was taking a systems approach and thinking about what do we need to have a robust system to support countermeasure development. And that, that was really the focus of the 2010 review was fix this system. And I think the productivity of that system over the last decade is testament to how important that was. And
0: this can all be drawn back to the decision taken by the President of the United States. Absolutely. Which itself built on the decision that was taken by his predecessor, George W. Bush.
1: Yeah. I, the, I mean, we sat down with President Obama, if I'm remembering correctly, on January 21st 2010. And he directed us in that meeting, it was an Oval Office meeting, directed us in that meeting to undertake the review and to focus on improving countermeasures development. And here
0: we are 10 years later. Thank you. That's a great story. Let's get back to talking a bit more about CEPI. You're two and a half years now into your first five-year cycle and hoping to renew for a further five years. That conversation will unfold, I would expect, and begin to accelerate over the course of twenty twenty. You're a new enterprise, relatively young institution. Tell us this enterprise which is placing bets and developing partnerships and seeing what is possible. How do you begin to estimate progress? What are the indicators that you point to uh, as a way of showing forward motion to your own staff, to your own investors and partners, to prospective supporters? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. I mean, I think the ultimate metric for SEPI is going to be, do we or don't we produce vaccines? Do we have vaccines against these threats? I mean, it, it's, it's really concrete, right. really tangible. It's going to be really easy to see if we have succeeded 10 years down the road. The challenge with vaccine development is that it takes a long time. It's a high risk enterprise. You can't predict the winners in advance. So right now, two and a half years in, we have a set of indicators that I'll talk about in just a second. But I want to just say, as I present those, personally, I don't like process indicators. So counting Mm -hmm. the number of meetings that I attend is not of any utility Mm -hmm. to anyone. The indicators that we can point to right now, we've set the program up. We've got five priority pathogens that we're working on.
0: Why don't you quickly reiterate those for us?
1: Sure, so these are diseases that WHO has identified as uh, not having countermeasures and, and presenting an epidemic threat to the world. And so we have focused on loss of fever, on NEPA, right. on MERS, uh, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, on chikungunya, and on Rift Valley mm-hmm. fever. And we've also got a set of investments supporting the further development of Ebola vaccines. So we've got really six diseases where we've got investments. We've got five of those, all of them except Ebola, where we are sort of the primary custodian of vaccine development um, and supporting that through grants to the private sector. In two and a half years, we've set up 19 vaccine development projects against those five pathogens. We've also established three partnerships to develop rapid response vaccine development platforms. And those platforms add an additional seven vaccines to that pool of Nineteen that I mentioned. Of those vaccines, most of them, almost all of them, in fact, except for a couple of the MERS vaccines and a a couple of the chikungunya vaccines, had not reached clinical trials. And so these were all vaccines that were in what I would call late preclinical development. They had some proof of concept data in animal models. We had a candidate vaccine, but we hadn't taken any of them into clinical trials. At this point, three of the vaccines that we're in preclinical. We're now supporting uh, clinical trials, phase one Mm -hmm. clinical trials. Mm -hmm. We anticipate in the coming year at least seven or eight of those additional vaccines will advance into human clinical trials, into phase ones. And we think we're on target. We just completed a portfolio review uh, about six weeks ago. And we believe we are on target to deliver on CEPI's original promise, which is that within five years of initiating vaccine development programs, we would have vaccines that had completed early phase two clinical trials, phase 2 a clinical trials, and that we would have established ready reserves, I'll call it, of clinical trial material that would allow us to initiate clinical trials very rapidly in the event of an outbreak. And we think we're on track to deliver within the five years. The metrics that I can give investors right now uh, have to, in a certain extent, be sort of process metrics, but they're tangible process. They're getting vaccines into clinical trials and advancing Mm -hmm. them, you know, from preclinical into phase one, and hopefully at some point in the coming year, even one or two from phase one into phase two.
0: Thank you. So your portfolio is 27, 28 vaccines at this moment? Twenty-six, and
1: we've got a twenty-seventh that will be joining shortly. Okay,
0: how does that number compare to what a company might have? That sounds like a large portfolio.
1: It is a large portfolio. I mean, the, of of the large multinational corporations, I, I think they may have potentially a, a company like GSK or Pfizer or you know whoever will have a number of candidates in their pipeline uh-huh. at different stages of development. The long-standing companies, that pipeline, you know, would have early, you know, preclinical things and late preclinical things in phase one, things in phase two, would be spread out. I think the difference in our pipeline, I think, I think our pipeline probably is in terms of numbers, probably comparable to a company like GSK or to a, mm-hmm. one of the large multinationals. I don't know the exact number, but I think that's probably a reasonable guess. I think the difference in our pipeline and the risk in our pipeline is that all of our candidates, with just a couple of exceptions, are in very early development. So Mm -hmm. we have a left shifted pipeline. Yes, And a lot of our partners are smaller companies, uh, or even academic organizations, and we have even one or two nonprofit organizations. So we have a set of partners who are terrifically innovative, but who themselves don't have all the capabilities in-house to complete end-to-end vaccine development.
0: Right. So as you move through these phases, you're going to have to address that. We are, and
1: and that's part of our our business model. Our partnership model, we talked earlier about our partnership model with our funding partners. There's also our partnership model with our vaccine developers. And our partnership model is to obviously provide the funding to support the development work. But it's also to provide technical expertise from internal capabilities that we have in terms of subject matter experts, essentially free consulting to our partners to help them solve problems. But I think we also have an opportunity and I'd like to explore this more in coming years, with our funding partners, there's a lot of embedded capability there mm-hmm. that also might be brought to support, you know, institutional right. capability, infrastructure that we may be able to draw on to support the vaccine development efforts. And that's part of the idea of the coalition is is that it's gonna take partners from, you know, different sectors coming together and providing you know the capabilities and expertise that they can particularly provide to this joint collective effort to develop these vaccines.
0: So what I hear you saying is that things are moving ahead in a promising way. This is obviously a risky and fragile set of enterprises. You're not guaranteed of success. That's by definition the development of vaccines, particularly against these particular sets of targets. There's risk to this. It's a risky enterprise. But that you're feeling pretty good about being able to deliver on that promise of getting to early phase two on at least one and and while showing continued forward movement on a body of others. I think that's right we've we've gotten off to a fast
1: start. The reception that we've had in the global community has been strong and positive. People want us to succeed. and I think I'm glad we talked about it earlier the the model of the US government programs which have demonstrated a pathway to success we right. know what the elements of success are and right now we're in the process of, of trying to make sure that all of those elements are represented in you know the global uh, architecture where it's relevant to sepi's efforts that we can draw on those elements as we need to to, to bring these vaccines forward
0: let's talk a bit about that broader, global ecosystem. People, yourself and others who work in this field often talk about an ecosystem and the need to create a better system that would be conducive to the development of new vaccines and therapeutics. Let's start, first of all, with what is a conducive environment or a conducive ecosystem? What are you looking for when you say we need a conducive environment?
1: Let me frame it in very abstract terms, at least initially. I I think you've got to have clear priorities. Mm -hmm. You've got to have appropriate financing, and you've got to have good institutional coordination and connections. I think in terms of the clear priorities, WHO and setting up their R&D blueprint and narrowing things down to a, a core list of diseases that we really need to focus on right now, and a problem in disease X, the future unknown disease, that we need to be ready for has given us the the priorities. So that's in place. You've gotta have stable financing and you've gotta have ample financing and you've gotta have multi-year commitments to support the R&D. Related, you also have to have a set of, they're often called pull incentives, but rewards that are available for those who are able to bring their products across the finish line. They've gotta be markets. Typically, those are going to be government or public sector markets, so you have to have someone who's promising to procure anything that is successfully developed. We just had a major advance in that domain when Gavi opened its Ebola vaccine funding window. Uh, They just announced this a couple of weeks ago, $178 million over the next four or five years to support the procurement of Ebola vaccines for a global stockpile. That's a critical element. I've got in the range of 750-800 million dollars secured over at least through 2021 at this point to support the R&D that's an important commitment and the fact that that's a multi-year commitment is critical and then the last piece is the institutional coordination which is that having those priorities the the global institutions charged with responsibility for developing and sustaining these vaccines need to be able to work together very efficiently. I was at a meeting in Paris a while ago, and I was asked to talk about the strength of partnerships and in this effort. And the way the question was framed, it was sort of, I think it was asking me to talk about like, well, how strong are your relations with Gavi or how strong are your relations with WHO? And I actually chose to invert the question a little bit and talk about not the strength of partnerships in terms of the strength of the relationship, but the strength in partnership and the way that by learning to work together and to coordinate our efforts and to become more efficient working together, we could achieve a lot more than if Mm -hmm. we each individually operated according to our own agendas, with our own timelines and our own sets of priorities. And I think increasingly what we're seeing in the global community is a willingness to work on priorities and to not try to boil the ocean but to say, okay, we're gonna work on Lhasa together as a global community. And some people are gonna be working on improving case management. Other people are gonna be working on epidemiology. We're gonna be working on vaccines, but we're all gonna work together to take Lhasa off the table. And then I think we've seen that with Ebola over the last several years. And the advances that we've made in terms of developing the Merck vaccine, in terms of developing the therapeutics, in terms of setting up this funding window at Gavi, Speaks to what can be accomplished if the community comes together and just says, "Okay, let's focus on this particular threat right now, and let's solve the problems for this threat and yes. take it off the table."
0: In terms of what more it might need to be done in strengthening what you're talking about—priorities, financing, coordination. Let's say that you know the next administration, whether it's Trump or a Democrat, comes into power in a year's time, January of twenty-one and you're charged with laying out a US strategy for building a better ecosystem uh, that has these elements that you've identified. Give us a couple of concrete examples. What would you call for through US leadership to strengthen the, what would the concrete things be in your mind, because you know these constituent elements, you know the history, you know what the landscape looks like. What would you call for?
1: Well, I think what the US can do in bringing its leadership to this problem. I mean, besides having tremendous institutional capabilities, infrastructure, scientific expertise, they also have unparalleled resources. They have, and, and, and a stronger historical commitment to addressing <laughs> these kinds of problems in any other country in the world. And if you could couple those things with directive leadership coming from a very high place, hopefully from the White House, saying, we think this is important, we have, made terrific progress against Ebola. Need to maintain that, obviously. But now we want to focus on a few diseases, and we want to bring our partners along with us, and we want to work through mechanisms that are available to us, whether it's g G7 or the Global Health Security Initiative or Global Health Security Agenda. But let us all as the world now focus on, let's say, Ebola, Lhasa, MERS, NEPA. Let's get those off the table. I think that leadership and that focus and the ability of the U.S. government to lobby its partners, to focus effort, would be tremendous. It's my hope that the U.S. will step into that role.
0: Let's return to Ebola. Just looking back, first of all, CEPI was born out of the crisis and experiences and the conclusions of the 14-15 Ebola crisis in West Africa. That's your origin story. Now we have ongoing Ebola crisis in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We're arguably 21 months into this. We're discovering that vaccines remain absolutely essential in this equation. The Merck vaccine, over a quarter of a million people have been immunized, unprecedented scale. We now have the introduction on an exploratory basis of the Johnson & Johnson Ebola vaccine also within DRC and the surrounding region. And CEPI remains part of the response and effort here, which is uh, very interesting. So tell us a little bit, in the current crisis and the response, what, what is your special role and contribution in this? It doesn't surprise me that CEPI is still there and active. That's part of your origin, right? It's your roots.
1: Absolutely I mean, I, you know we were invited to step in and to help with the coordination of a second trial of a second vaccine back in February by the chair of the scientific committee for the r and d blueprint at WHO. We went through a process there obviously there are a number of Ebola vaccine candidates that right. have been developed to a certain degree. The J and J vaccine stood out by far as having the the best core data set had been explored in humans. There was a safety database of about 6,000 people uh, even before the initiation of the current trial. And we were asked to help coordinate getting a second trial started. At the time, in February, there were real concerns about the Merck vaccine supply. Those, very fortunately, those have been somewhat alleviated, and there's more vaccine under production now. Uh, But we have proceeded with the trial, and we've served both to coordinate the implementing partners, uh, in this case, the London School, MSF, Episantre, the INRB, which is the National Research Institution mm-hmm. within DRC. Yep. And we helped play a, a critical role bringing those partners together and working with them to develop a clinical protocol and to work through all of the processes, which unfortunately became very entangled with DRC politics over Correct. the summer. But we were able to, to initiate the trial in November. Mm-hmm. At the same time, CEPI also had a role with the funders. And we are a funder of the trial, and we worked to coordinate a consortium of funders, including Wellcome, DFID, Vulcan, and the European community, as well as a contribution from CEPI to to pull together the resources needed to support that effort. And so we've got this interesting role on the trial steering committee, but we're also sort of leading the group of funders. And we've tried to be a fair broker throughout that process and to work in, a, in close alignment with WHO in particular, mm-hmm. working through the the SAGE advisory body that, that they have and to work with them as they went through a independent process of, of looking at all of the vaccine candidates to make sure that, in fact, I think we all instinctually felt that the J&J vaccine was the right vaccine to introduce. Mm-hmm. But we had to have a fair assessment and a fair process. Right. And we worked right. closely with WHO to support their pursuing that process.
0: So playing this role of a convener, a key element in organizing a consortium of funding and thinking through the trial phases, thinking through the interdigitation with the different approval entities, the SAGE committee, the complicated web of authorities and institutions and funders and partners including the Congolese, of course, who have to be brought into this mix. As you put it, a brokering, you see that brokering role is is something that will carry forward in CEPI's evolution as an essential element of what you do and your mission and your identity? Or is this kind of an exceptional thing that popped up and you'll see what happens?
1: I don't mean to be overly clever about it, but there are things about this particular trial with the vaccine that had already been substantially developed before the trial that are unique. But I do think the brokering role for us and being the champion of good science, and and obviously when you're in a public health emergency, there are all kinds of pressures to do things. um, And and, and you've got to maintain an emphasis on the quality of the clinical trial design, the quality of the science. Because if we want to have these products available for future epidemics, we've got to actually conclusively demonstrate that they work. I do see us working very closely with our partners at WHO and I think because of the kind of organization we are and the mission that we've got, we're going to accumulate experience over time in different epidemic settings with different kinds of products that will position us really uniquely, I think in many respects, to, you know, bring perspective and objectivity to any decisions to explore experimental vaccines and future Mm -hmm. epidemics. And and so I think that is going to be a core part of what we're doing. If I could just offer very quickly, I I think the neat thing about the recent experience is that we can draw lessons um, both with respect to pathogens that we know about. I mean, Ebola is something we're familiar with. This vaccine had been under development, and there were challenges in getting it introduced. And I think those are things that will serve us well as we think about Lhasa and Mm Nipah and the other diseases we're working on. But in some respects, because we were brought in after the epidemic had started and were asked to pull the consortium of implementers and the consortium of funders together in real time and to develop a protocol in real time, there are aspects of the experience that I think will serve us well uh, as we think about how we would respond to the next disease
0: X. Say a bit more about what you mean by that. I think the challenge with You have a few bruises here and there and yeah, you know, lessons
1: learned. I think the challenge with disease X, this is the disease that, you know, we can't anticipate, Correct. never encountered before, is that by the time we start to respond to it, we're going to be into the event. And the pressures that emerge when you're in a public health crisis are very different from the types of things that you worry about when there's not an epidemic and you can plan prospectively, and gaining the experience of how you operate with international partners, how you operate with the government under stress, particularly in a conflict area, those are the kinds of circumstances and kinds of problems that we can anticipate are likely to you know, also characterize any future disease X epidemic. I mean, one of the things about epidemics, right, is, is that they don't emerge in just random places. They emerge where Public health infrastructure is weak. They often emerge in zones of conflict. You have to anticipate that, and that changes the calculations and discussions and kinds of collaborations that are possible.
0: Yeah, and of course, going back to DRC, I mean, the paradox, it seems, there is that we have now two vaccines that people are increasingly comfortable and confident that are coming forward at different stages, but nonetheless we have these tools. It raises the promise of being able to vaccinate the Ebola belt at some point in the future. It raises this notion, as you were saying, taking things off the table. We have therapies that are promising in terms of curative therapies. But we're facing a stark chaos and violence in this setting too that still leaves us to two-thirds mortality of those that become infected with Ebola. And so Moving forward in the in terms of countermeasures, it requires a pretty rugged and expeditionary outlook and approach. This is not a field for those who are faint of heart.
1: No, not at all. And and I think we can acknowledge all the challenges that we have encountered and are still grappling with in responding in North Kivu and and Ituri. But I think it's also important, particularly as you come to the end of the year and are reflecting back on the accomplishments uh, of the year. It's extraordinary. That the responders were able to conduct a randomized clinical trial of therapeutics
0: in, in the this, midst,
1: in the midst, and that's a game changer to bring clear evidence of efficacy for therapeutics along and to the demonstration of efficacy with the vaccine. I mean, you're right, a quarter of a million doses have been administered. We're still dealing with the epidemic because of the challenges in that environment. But the efficacy data that has been accumulated for that vaccine, Is extraordinary. Would you have ever
0: predicted that that would have happened? The ability to get that quality of data in the midst of such demanding and difficult circumstances.
1: I think it says how far the world has come in the last five years. Five years ago, we were still debating about the ethics of doing research during epidemics, and really vitriolic debates. I think WHO's leadership in pressing for the inclusion of research and development during epidemics during the response during a response has been a game changer and i think the entire world has come along and and the fact that the world was committed to finding a way to standing up and conducting a randomized clinical trial in this unbelievably complicated and challenging and dangerous environment speaks to just a paradigm shift of how we think about countermeasures
0: and I think uh, Dr. Muyembe deserves a little bit of credit for this in terms of the person who was there in 1976 when this pathogen was first discovered, opening the door to making that possible and then remarkably being there today.
1: Oh my goodness, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen that nature has just named Professor Muyembe as one of the 10 leading scientists in terms of having most impact on the world this year. Absolutely well-deserved. Uh, Professor Muyembe, besides uh, leading INRB for decades, and, and his seminal work on Ebola. you know, Without his personal commitment, the trial of the therapeutics wouldn't have occurred, nor would the J&J trial have occurred. He himself helped us through the many, many challenges that we faced and helped us navigate the political turmoil in DRC uh, with a clear and steady hand. He's, he's a remarkable individual. It's been a, a real honor to be able to work with him.
0: Thank you. And thank you for your very optimistic and uplifting sort of conclusion to the year here. And thank you for being with us today. And thank you for all the great work and leadership you've brought to CEPI. We're all very encouraged and hopeful.
1: Steve, thanks so much for having me.